yeah, my politics was always around my household when I was young. And when you grow up with that, you start asking questions based on what you've heard your parents talking about. So I remember going into school and speaking to my, my teacher and saying, uh, why did Labour lose the election? This was 1979. And teacher, he was the deputy head. He went, what a, what a, what a marvellous question. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. In this episode, Johnny sits down with Clive Lewis MP. Johnny and Clive really hit it off in this episode with much in common. Despite coming from different political teams, it goes to show that when you get two people together from the armed forces, there really is more to talk about what unites you than divides you. They chat about going on ops, where Clive, like Johnny, served in Afghanistan. Clive's formative years in Northampton, the relationships with their dads sparking political interest, and about the civil rights movement. This episode is packed. It's time for you to meet our guest. Clive, great to see you. How are you, how are you today? It's great to catch up again. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I'm all right. I'm a little bit tired. I had a late night last night. I had a busy day yesterday. I had the police crime bill. Um, I gave a speech, but there's a lot of to and froing, writing articles. It's a busy day yesterday, um, and then quite a lot going on at home. You might sometimes catch my daughter, my two-year-old daughter, in the background, <laughs> kind of crying, and she may try and come in. But hopefully, my wife's got her on a tight leash. But yeah, it's been a it's been a busy time recently, but um, not too busy to come on the show. I'm looking forward to this. No, I'm really really excited to catch up. We had a really good call the other week, and. Um, you know, it's clear that we've got quite a lot in common, as well as uh, perhaps from our political worlds, uh, quite a few differences as well. But um, one thing that we do have in common is about family. And I was really interested to read about you um, in growing up in Northampton, obviously the county that I live and I lived in Northampton as well. But as a young man growing up in Northampton, how important was family to you? Uh, massive. Um, it was everything, really. Um, my family. Um, so um, my dad is from Grenada um, and my mum is, is, is English from London and um, my family moved from London to Northampton in the early 70s. I moved down there with them and most of the family I grew up with were my you know, extended family, Northampton, my English family. So my cousins, my aunts, uncles, nan and granddad um, and the council estate we, we moved into became another extended family. It's a very close-knit community. Um, you know, people's moms used to pick up children from school and, and look after them. And things, I'm sure those things happen now. But um, I think I've lived in places where it doesn't happen quite frequently. But there, there was a real sense of community and a sense of family. So my family, yeah, big influence on me. My dad, my granddad, um, who was in the Paras, you know, come on to that later in the Second World War. 
uh, Normandy and all that. So yeah, there was a, a lot of family. It's yeah, it's a big influence on my life, really. Yeah, and I think we both um, we spoke about our dads fondly about you know sort of coming home from cadets as a young lad. I would be allowed to stay up late and watch Question Time with my dad and throwing cushions at the TV as a young lad. And I think that's something you can identify with too, right? Yeah, I can. I mean, the first thing is, the first night, <laughs> my dad still tells a story. He's a trade union official. And um, this is in the 1980s. And I came home in uniform. And I had I, I positioned my uniform after months of going, going in civvies, you know, and you're, getting, you're like, when am I going to get my uniform here? And I finally got it. And I turned up my beret. I was in the Pioneer Corps, grave diggers, as we were called. <laughs> and um, uh, <clears throat> no offense to anyone that's in the Pioneer Corps, but it's still going. Um, and uh, we um, got back and I stood on the doorstep. And I kind of hunched over and I stood there. And my dad saw me and he said, he almost said, he thought the, he thought the military had come for him. He thought, <laughs> he thought, he thought Thatcher had put the lists out. And they were sending the military round. They opened the door. It was it was relief and then joy. He was so proud. He was taking pictures of me. But anyway, yeah, my dad obviously is a trade unionist. Um, he was, you know, rallying around getting, I remember him getting awards from the miners for raising money and, and buying food for them during the miners' strike. It's a very politicised time. Um, and, uh, you know, my granddad uh, was um, uh, a trade union engineer, and uh, a trade unionist. And, you know, I used to sit there with them watching political shows like Brian Ward and Weekend World. And I would pick things up um, from them, listening to their conversations. And that's where I began to get an interest in politics. Um, but yeah, my politics was always around my household when I was young. And when you grow up with that, you start asking questions based on what you've heard your parents talking about. So I remember going into school and speaking to my, my teacher and saying, uh, why did Labour lose the election? This was 1979. And teacher, the, the, he was the, the deputy head. He went, what a, what a marvellous question well let me try to explain that basically labor borrowed too much money they couldn't pay it back so they lost the election now obviously where i am now i would i would take issue with that but nonetheless that was the answer i got and um that was the that was the you know that was the i think the fact that i remembered that kind of implies to me that these were important memories important moments in my life because I obviously reflected on them. They went into my deep memory, so my long-term memory. So, yeah, yeah, very, yeah, very, very influential my family. Yeah, that really resonates because, um, like you as a kid, at school we had pottery class and we were tasked with making a Toby jug. All the other kids, they did, like, footballers, pop stars and stuff. I did the Prime Minister of the Day, which was John Major. It was quite good, actually. I got his you know, top lip, you know, really well done. But, I mean... That's that's pretty niche for a for a twelve year old. We were one of the spitting image one because yeah. I think that was famous. <laughs> I think that was my influence actually. Um, yeah. But the the other thing that um, that we have in common as well is that military service, and obviously this is veterans in politics. And I've been speaking to a few people about um, and, and sort of explaining when I talk about those MPs of a military background. Obviously, your name pops up, and a few of my friends actually express surprise. Um, about your link to the military and it's not really something that you go on about much why do you think it's not that well known and why do you think that my friends were surprised and should they be um no they shouldn't be surprised because i think i mean i understand why they might be it's the, the military is a very establishment uh, organization 
in terms of um, the people, not all, but many of the people who will end up in there, they will have a, a very, what I would call, traditional, very specific view of the world, perhaps of the monarchy, perhaps of how society should be organised. Um, and th that's not everyone, because I found that out when I was in the army. But it's, it's definitely in there, and it's definitely, I would say, the, the prevalent kind of view. And I challenge that inside. But there are limits to what you can challenge. There are limits to what you can say as a, a Republican, uh, and a Republican with a capital R, not in, as in a paramilitary Republican. Um, <laughs> um, so, so I think in terms of, and, that, and I think that raises questions to people about why on earth would you be in the army? Well, and I, um, I guess you have to go back to my influences from my granddad. My granddad on my English side was a very big influence on me. Um, I, I, I really gravitated to him um a great deal and he would tell me a lot of stories about his time in the military in france in normandy and and they i was i was amazed and mesmerized by his stories because they were good stories if you've been in a war like the second world war you're gonna have some good stories and he had some crackers some corkers and um i i was a young boy i liked watching war films i liked you know playing war at playtime um and i you know i think when I got to a certain age, I started, I obviously went into the army cadets. I had a good time in the army cadets. I had a bad time in the army cadets. I experienced quite bad racist bullying um, from some real kind of proper national front thugs who were in the, in the, in the, in the cadets when we went to summer camp and stuff. But that was an, that was an exception. The majority of the kids that I met in uh, the cadets were great. But they put me off a bit, I'll be honest. Um, you know, the kind of you know, black in the Union Jack was I think was, was said to me a, a few times, or rather screamed in my face. Um, and uh, I went away and I went, obviously went to journalism. And when I came, but when I was at inger, doing journalism, I was, my granddad, I don't know if other people have noticed this of their grandparents, but the older you get, the more your, the, the key moments of your life come into focus. And he started, he went through a phase from between his 50s and 70s where he didn't go back to Normandy didn't do much as he got a bit older it started to take on more and more meaning for him and I used to go back with him and I used to go back with him and that sense of camaraderie that sense of of belonging that sense of achievement of doing something with their lives it just I think just resonated with me so in a way that few things did and it rekindled my kind of my my kind of the military side of things and i i went back in and i investigated i ended up joining uh, the rifles and i wanted to push myself as far as i could go physically mentally and if you go into the you know if you go into the army you go into the reserves it does that you know you you know how many people you know spend the weekend getting trashed you spent the weekend problem solving assault courses you know platoon attacks um night patrols ambushes yeah, it's hard at the time, but you come back with a sense of I did something and you're part of a team and you have that camaraderie. So uh, I loved it. Um, and politics of the military and, and so aside, um, that's what I got out of it. And that's what I enjoyed. And, you know, yeah, I became an officer and, and I, had, I had some of the best times of my life, um, you know, training. And um, I miss it, if I'm honest. Now, I think... Clearly, I, I served a tour of Afghanistan, um, and that was, you know, I think anyone that's been on the tour, an active tour, um, I, was, I was the OC of a combat camera team. And if you want to know what that is, that's basically, I was thinking about it, how would you describe it? If you've seen Full Metal Jacket, 
the Joker Man. Is that you, John Wayne? Is that me? That one? That's combat camera. So they were out on patrol with the infantry or with the cavalry or whoever it was. And, you know, a lot of time, no one was filming. You were, you know, you had your rifle up to your shoulder. So it was um, a, 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 an intense experience. What I will say is this. It is possible to be able to be in the military and also be left wing and also to have an understanding. I've found out things now about about my understanding of the world of the military, which perhaps uh, wasn't there before. And the thing I always say to people, especially on the left, is this. People in the military, they're our sons, our daughters, our brothers, our aunts, our uncles, our cousins. Many, most of them are working people. And, you know, they don't decide which parts of the world they go into or the wars they fight in. They're there to serve their country. And it's the politicians who make the decisions about where they go. So if you have an issue with military intervention, it's the politicians. The vast majority of soldiers I've ever come, met have been professional and courteous and, and great. Of course, there are exceptions to that. We all know that. Um, but ultimately, I think in my, in my field of work in politics, where I am in politics, there is a sense sometimes that those with a military background, those who aspire to be in the military or part of the military, will have a certain set of politics and worldview. Well, sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not. And I'll finish on saying this. Um, I think it was wrong to go into Iraq. I think it was wrong for us, the country, to go into Afghanistan. I now have a better understanding. But and whilst it was a very tough time, I don't regret the experience I had. But I don't think we should have been there. But I don't think I'm the only person of a military bent that probably thinks that now. Um, and that's the beauty of hindsight, I suppose, and learning lessons. Has our country learned those lessons? I don't know. I'd like to think they have but I doubt it. Wow. There's, there's so much to unpick, to unpick that. I mean, uh, that, that connection to your grandfather, um, absolutely for me, indeed, I followed his footsteps and joined his forebear regiment. Uh, so he was in the, the, the Royal West Kents and, uh, I joined the princess of Wales's Royal regiment. So I've actually got his cap badge right in front of me now as I'm right. speaking and look at it. Yeah. He's very cap badge. And, um, so yeah, that really connected to me and, and actually, it was interesting to to see how the military, you were able to transfer your civilian skills into that military context, which is really interesting. It's something I bang on about all the time because it doesn't happen oft, often enough. But that experience you then took into politics too because you were Shadow Defence Secretary for a while, right? Yeah, that's and, right. Um, and I recall uh, in a an interview with a journalist, you were talking about your first debate from the dispatch box and it was on Trident. Perhaps we won't unpick uh, Trident at the moment, but but how do you prepare for big moments, big speeches like that? I'm really fascinated to know because you, and yeah, we're humans. How do you cope with nerves? How do you cope with speaking on such a platform? You know, is it daunting? Yeah, it is deeply daunting. And and uh, and that, as I said in that article, you know, there was I stood up and there was. Boris Johnson, the new foreign secretary, I think it was Boris Johnson, the new foreign secretary, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, Theresa May, he'd just been elected. Um, and a whole host of Tory grandees, these big names. And there was little old me, Councillor State Clive, um, you know, and I was stood up. And I, as I was saying, this was obviously not the best of times for the Labour Party and defence policy and, and unity, because um, I think about half of the PLP were, were busy kind of throwing their papers and whatever they get their hands on at me. Well, there was a lot of booing going on because, because obviously we were taking a position that we were against Trident and, and party it was against party policy. 
actually, as it turned out. Um, but Corbyn was elected as leader by someone who didn't believe in the real trident. So obviously the, the government had, had kind of come, created this debate for this very reason. And it was, it was nerve-wracking. And when I stood up, I remember thinking, to, it's, it's almost like, what else are you going to do? Are you going to sit and go, I'm not standing up. I'm not going to, I'm not, I can't do this. You just, you do it, you do it. And it reminds me when I was, when I went to Canada with the army, I did, um, I, I volunteered to do um, um, parachuting, you know, um, skydiving as it was. And uh, I was talking to a sergeant and I'd already committed just before we went out. And I said, um, I said, uh, so you've been before you, but yeah. I said, um, so is it static line? He looked at me <laughs> spanned over there. I went, well, 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 how do we get out? He says, you climb out of the plane onto the wing, you shimmy along the wing, and then the instructor tells you when to let go. <laughs> you go back like that. And I, and I said, you're shitting me like that. And he said, no. And no word of a lie, that's what happened. You went up to, I don't know, four or 5,000 feet. They opened the door. You trained on the ground. And I, was, I said, I'll go first. And you have to go out. You have to step out with the wind. Step, put your foot on the, on the little slip, and then you shimmy along the wing, hold on, look over, and then you go like that, okay? And for me, that first step of going out the plane was pretty much like, if you can do that, you can stand up at a dispatch book. So I guess in so many ways, what the military taught me was that what you think is impossible is possible. Um, and that dispatch box was, was trying, was difficult, but it was no more difficult than stepping out of a plane at 4,000 feet, so... Uh, that's a great analogy i remember that one when i'm a bit scared <laughs> like speaking to an mp on a podcast for example you know you've got to get on and do it haven't you really certainly getting out of your comfort zone but um it's funny actually because just picking up you referred to yourself um you know uh, i'm sure it was just a, a quip but as councillor state clive and you know you were the first from your family to go to university and you went on to train in a profession such as journalism and you became an army officer so what do you think would have come become of uh, sort of that young council state Clive if those kind of opportunities hadn't been afforded to you? What do you think would have happened to you? And how can we inspire other sort of working class kids to aspire for more? That's a that's a that's a big question. Um, you know, look, when I grew up, Northampton was a town which had had millions of pounds of investment from the then Labour government, and then I imagine Conservative governments after, but definitely the Labour government had set it up as one of the new towns. And, you know, I grew up <clears throat> in a warm, secure council house where the rent was affordable. I went to a comprehensive school where I was in a school system where everyone was given the same chances. They weren't great chances, but they were chances. Um, because if you went to school in Northampton, education wasn't brilliant. Um, and it was dependent on the school that you went to, but it was comprehensive. Everyone got the same education. Um, whereas now it's fragmented in so many ways. Um, I got a grant to go to university. Um, so all of these things are things for me which Labour governments have provided. And that made a massive difference to my life and my life chances, as well as, as, well as having parents that push me to do that. If I didn't go to university, when I look, at some of, I look at some of my friends that didn't go, some of them have done well. They're still in Northampton, many of them, and they have lives, family lives. I could have had a life like that. But being a young black boy, um, I could have ended up fine, but I think, you know, we all know, we've all seen this, the figures for, you know, black people in custody, black people in the criminal justice system and so on. There's a larger, there's a bigger chance that I would have ended up going astray. And I do have a lot of, I do have people who I used to hang up with. I won't call them friends, but people I knew, I grew up with, I hung out with when I was younger. 
who have been, you know, lifelong heroin addicts um, or on opiates for most of their lives still are. You know, there is um, there was a there was a dark possibility that I may not have um, ended up in a good place. I could have ended up in a bad place. But you know, that, that's a kind of alternate reality. That what if? And I'm not sure what would have happened. All I do know is that my family, my community from the government of the day gave me some life chances. Now, I look today, and without being overtly political on your podcast, we don't live in a meritocracy. We simply don't. Um, And the life chances that many people have are limited. And I remember asking someone from the Salvation Army about, I was out with him and I was a candidate, and he was a colonel, and he'd been doing it for more than 20 years. And, and I sat in the car next to him and I was thinking, I've got to ask this question because it's really bugging me. And I need to, I need to get it out. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, of course you can. I said, it, I hope it isn't offensive. He said, it's not. I said, do you, think, do you think many of the homeless people that we're going to see tonight have kind of made the choice to be homeless? And he said, he said that's not a stupid question. He said, I tell the, I, I've thought about it long and hard myself over my career. And I'll tell you the answer I, I, I give is this. I used to go in, I go into schools and talk to small children at school. And I, I tell them about the Salvation Army. I come in my uniform. And when I come in and the teachers introduce me, the head teachers introduce me, they sit there cross-legged, all these little five, six, and seven-year-olds looking up at me. And you look at their faces and you know that statistically, 20 or 30% of them will end up homeless, on the game, drugs, criminalized, whatever it is, maybe more, depending on the school that you go to. And he said, I look at them there, and none of them are sat there thinking, I want to be a drug adult, adult prostitute. I want to be uh, a drug dealer. I want to be homeless and begging. None of them sit there, mate. But the family that they're born into make cha- are given certain chances, and those chances narrow. And the, cha- and the choices their parents make for them or don't make for them begin to narrow their opportunities. And then as they grow older with those limited and decisions that they make get narrower and narrower until... They're on the street until they are. And he said, is that their fault? And I said, well, they made the choices, but clearly the choices that they were able to make were limited. And he said, exactly. So they said, there is no easy answer, but you can see the society we live in and the life chances that people have are kind of in many ways predetermined before they're even born and the families they're born into, the communities they're born into. And it was a really, it was a real revelation for me because it made me realize actually when I see homeless people, when I see people in distress or poverty, makes me think that we do not all have the same life chances. And I think in politics, you get people that are trying, I think genuinely trying to enhance those life chances. But I think at the moment, we've got a political an economic system, which is so skewed that there are large numbers of people who don't even have the boots to pull their boots up. And there are so many impediments holding them back. And people say, well, I had it tough. I made it. Well, that's great. But if you want to maximise that, not everyone will make the right chances in, 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 a, in a kind of in a tapering scale of chances. And I think ultimately, if you want to maximise that, you've got to give people those opportunities and life chances. And that's not happening at the moment on a scale that I think is acceptable. Uh, so, it's, yeah. that's, it's really powerful hearing you speak like that. Like that. And that example, I'm sure for our listeners, um, will have really hit home. And to hear you speak so passionately as well, it certainly has for me standing here listening. And that life chance agenda is something I'm deeply passionate about. And I often think if my family hadn't moved out of Southeast London, you know, into that kind of growing London overspill of Kent, what would have happened to me? 
would I have been the first person in my family to go to university? Probably not. Um, so that that's that's really powerful. But um, but here you are. You know, you've you're kind of a living embodiment of that life chance agenda for for some of those opportunities that you've grasped that have come towards you. And one of those opportunities was going for labour leadership. <laughs> are you, you going to have another, another stab at that one day? You know what? <clears throat> when you're looking at, I think for some people who are thinking of going into politics, and I was one of them, there is a sense of you look at you look at politics through the lens of television and people making decisions and being in the thick of thick of it, and you see that the further up that greasy pole you get the more in the thick of it you are quite literally in the thick of it um and um i think there's a i think i think it's very easy to look at that and think oh i fancy a bit of that i could you know a bit of west wing i could make those decisions i could yeah i guess it's a bit it's a it's a bit of it's a quite pressurized but hey you're making big decisions that matter and make a difference and i think it's quite tempting but when you're in it there's a there's an expression which is the hardest job um, the second hardest job in politics is to be prime minister. The hardest job in, polit- in British politics is to be leader of the opposition. And let's face it, on the current trajectory we're on, that's the only way in the near future that someone like me is ever going to be leader. Leader of, not prime minister, but leader of the opposition. And um, I think when you look at it, I've watched Ed Miliband. I watched how it ended for Tony Blair. I watched how it ended for Gordon Brown. I watched how it ended for Jeremy Corbyn, and I watched. I watched. I'm watching how it's going for Keir Starmer. And you know what? You've got to be a sucker for punishment if you want to be leader of the Labour Party. There is nothing romantic about it. It's, it's blood, sweat, and tears. Um, so knowing that, knowing how it can destroy your life, your reputation, and still want that, I have to say, I have days where I think you you don't want that. Why would you want that? But then I think. Are there days when you think actually what's the point of being in politics if you can't if you can't really enact your vision and what you want to see happen and being a leader would help you do that so i'm torn between the two because i quite like my life i don't have people outside my doorstep when i step out thankfully at the moment um i don't have people um going through in great detail with a fine tooth comb everything i say although by and large you get a bit of that but not as much you do so I guess I guess a long-winded answer to your question is maybe, but at this moment in time, no. <laughs> so one day possibly, but at this moment, no. That's the that's the, my that's my most honest answer. I can't I can't put it any more blunt than that. And when the, when the moment arrives, I might just say. So, I mean, that wasn't even a politician's answer. That was a proper <laughs> sort of, uh, analysis. Um, I'll, I'll take it as a definitely maybe. The, I will take up one thing with you. And you said that I think the the, uh, the only the most difficult job is being leader of the opposition. Probably the partner of the leader of op- oppositions <laughs> or the partner of the prime minister. That's probably quite a tough job to do as well. Uh, but perhaps we'll ask one one day. Um, but no, I completely get that. Dennis like, seemed to have it. Dennis seemed to get it. Dennis, oh, Dennis, you know, when Dennis was making millions, weren't it? Dennis was in a, Dennis, I mean, I always thought Dennis had it good. But then maybe it's different for women next to, next to you know, but yeah, it's interesting. 
yeah, well, yeah. indeed. And yeah, you sit there and you think, yeah, why, why not? Why not me? I guess I've just recently been watching uh, Bobby Kennedy for president, and um, I'm properly obsessed by the uh, civil rights movement in the in the sort of 60s in the US at the moment. Is that a, is that a documentary or a series? Yes, on Netflix. I have to say, I've got no affiliate program of Netflix, but if you are listening, I am open for offers. <laughs> Um, but you sit there and you can't, there. <laughs> you can't help but be inspired. That's all I can say. Um, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. And you know, it's a documentary. Documentary. Yeah. So for, for, I met for, his daughter. I met his daughter. She was, she's wow. brilliant. Yeah. yeah she's 11, brilliant. 11 children and one that was born after he died. Um, what a tragedy. Yeah. But I don't want to end it on a, on a, um, sort of a, a sad note. Um, because certainly you can do when you're talking about the Kennedy family. Mm. Um, but just before we wrap up, Clive, um, you know, you've had a such a varied career, civilian career, military reservist career and political career. But if there is that young lad like you and me coming home from cadets on a Thursday night, who is a bit of a, a political geek <laughs> um, or, and is thinking about, um, you know, continuing their military career and the reserves or regulars and, and possibly politics, what's, what's that bit of advice you'd give that person? Um, be true to yourself you know don't try to force yourself into a political box that you think you should be in you know look at your own values and I would argue the values of, of kinship camaraderie you know the, the sisterhood brotherhood of, of military life you know many of those values I think are socialist values you know they're values about the many their way we look out for each other you know that expression, don't be a jack. You know, <laughs> don't look out for yourself. I'm not sure if I'll have to swear on your podcast. I shouldn't. But that was the expression that was used. Don't be so, don't be jack. You know, and it was about looking after number one. It was, it was, the, it was the team. You looked out for each other. And, and that pretty much is, 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 when you cut through it all, that's pretty much what the politics of the left are. There's lots of other bells and whistles that come onto that. But at its heart, it is about looking after one, each other, one another. And putting the needs of the team, the collective, before the needs of the individual. The individual has a role, has a place, has needs, but they are part of a greater whole and that we work together to achieve more. And I would say to, to anyone thinking of going into politics, remember that, be true to yourself and the values that you've learned from your time in the military. And if you want to go into politics, then I would say politics is crying out for people who, can, who have some of those military transferable skills that they can bring them over. And those are things like, um, organization uh, and also this is a really overused word leadership but it's about just kind of standing up and being counted so when they're looking for volunteers i know in the military they always say never volunteer for anything but you know when they're looking for it, it, political parties are based on people volunteering so you know you can lead by volunteering by being the first person to put their hand up by by getting stuck in so any kind of nco any officer knows that you need to lead by example a lot of the time and do you there's nothing you you wouldn't order anyone to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself it's what is that is what a good leader is now not everyone does that but and i think in politics if you can show that i'll be the i'll be the one that goes to deliver the leaflets on that rubbish round that no one wants and that shows something that shows people that you're prepared to graph that you're someone who has real values and commitment and and people are attracted to that and if you do want to go far and through into politics then those kind of things people remember and they will naturally gravitate to you. Um, and they, and I think that will serve you in good stead. So be true to yourself and remember the values and the transferable skills that you've learned in the military. They'll do, they'll stand you in good stead in politics. They really will. 
Wow. What a brilliant way to end this show. Clive, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat. I think we could have chatted for a long time. And uh, thanks again. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks for the chance. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.